Welcome to the Association Advisor Podcast. We're glad you've joined us for a conversation around best practices and leadership strategies for association professionals. I'm Katie Brown. And I'm Kelly Clark. Our guest this episode is Jeff DeCania, FRSA, FASAE, a leader and contrarian thinker in the association community. He talks with us today about the need for associations to reinvent themselves in the leadership and stewardship roles they were meant to fulfill. 2020 has been a year of uncertainty, protests, political upheaval, and refocusing of all kinds of priorities. And it's past time associations take a hard look at what their priorities are and adjust accordingly. Jeff explains that most associations have spent the last 20 years falling into what he calls the relevance fallacy, or the idea that being relevant to as many stakeholders as possible is the ultimate goal. But relevance has caused association leaders to become more self-serving and less focused on who they really need to be serving, their members, supporters, and their professional and geographical communities at large. Jeff goes further to say that going forward, associations must show a willingness to be uncomfortable as we transition to a way of doing business that's more sustainable and profitable. Reinventing associations in this image of stewardship will involve hard choices and the courage to take some self-sacrificing actions, but associations' very existence is at stake. If you've been thinking your association needs to regroup as we head into the new year, this episode is for you. Before we get to our conversation with Jeff, here's a message from our sponsor. Naylor Association Solutions believes in the power of association. This belief inspires us to provide comprehensive, silo-busting solutions for associations like yours. With Naylor, you not only get our industry-leading and ASAE-endorsed career center, our 50 years of experience creating relevant member communications, our agile event management team, and our innovative software brain trust, you also get the collective power of a company that brings all of its resources to bear on the success of your association. Naylor supplies the services that connect your members and supporters to opportunities and to each other. You supply the mission and the goals. Naylor provides the strategic knowledge, the cross-department efficiencies, and the perseverance to help your association better engage members while positively influencing revenue. We're many strengths within one company devoted to building stronger associations. Visit Naylor.com to learn how Naylor can build your association stronger. Jeff DeCania, FRSA, FASAE, is the Executive Advisor for Foresight First LLC in Reston, Virginia, and an association contrarian, foresight practitioner, governing designer, stakeholder advocate, and stewardship catalyst. In August 2019, Jeff became the 32nd recipient of ASAE's Academy of Leaders Award, the association's highest individual honor given to consultants or industry partners in recognition of their support of ASAE and the association community. Jeff can be reached at jeff at foresightfirst.io, on LinkedIn at jeffonlinkedin.com, or on Twitter, and his handle is at dutyofforesight. Welcome back to the Association Advisor podcast, Jeff. We're really glad to have you. Thanks, Kelly. Appreciate it. So what inspired you to write a series of columns challenging association decision makers to reinvent their organizations? 
very simple. It's time. <laughs> Associations have been deferring their reinvention for more than two decades, even as we've all seen powerful forces of transformation reshape our society. And I'm talking about uh, social, technological, economic, environmental, political forces uh, over the course of the last 20 years, really 20 plus years, um, that have combined to create the world in which we live in today. And, and all the things that are good about it and all the things that are that are challenging about it. But the problem is that instead of using these last two decades to really understand, anticipate, prepare for, and even really shape a different future for themselves, their stakeholders and successors, um, association decision makers have focused their attention elsewhere. And so everything that's happened this year uh, in this very difficult year of 2020 has really been a wake-up call that we can't continue to defer transformation and reinvention of our organizations. And it's really an early warning of the consequences if we fail to act. So again, I'd say I'm writing this series because it's time and because by acting now, there is still a chance to build something better and different before we get to the end of this decade. What kinds of consequences do you anticipate associations might face if they don't act now? For some organizations, if there isn't action you know, soon, those organizations may not survive for the rest of this decade. And I, you know, I hate to say that no one wants to contemplate that possibility, but you know, it, that, is, that is on the table, unfortunately. And so for some organizations, it, it's, it's potentially an existential threat if if action isn't taken um and there, there are no guarantees like there may be organizations that choose to reinvent themselves and still find it difficult to continue um, so there's no guarantee but the choice is to pursue the reinvention and give yourself the best possibility um, of being able to to thrive and being able to uh, to move forward and not just the association but also um, stakeholders and successors. And, and for other organizations, it, it may be the consequences may not be quite as dire, but I do think that for all associations, there's going to be uh, a serious impact because we're seeing how these very same forces, uh, these forces I mentioned earlier, social, technological, economic, environmental, political, uh, we're seeing how they reshape things and we're seeing how they're continuing to reshape things given the inciting event of a global pandemic and all the follow-on consequences that that created and our long overdue push for racial justice and to push back against racism and white supremacy, as well as other issues that have emerged over the course of this year. So we can't continue to believe that we'll just go on doing what we've been doing. Uh, we've got to be able to, to shift our focus and, and it's already happening throughout the rest of our society. Other efforts to transform and reinvent are already underway and associations must be a part of that process as well. I think that's spot on feedback. I'd like to talk about part one of your series. In part one, you write about the relevance fallacy and the complacency of relevance. Why do you see the focus on relevance as being so detrimental to associations specifically? Mm -hmm. So let's go back a little bit and, and build back up to today. So when I began looking at the consequences of relevance thinking in the late 2000s, 
my initial reaction was that it was kind of a benign distraction from more important conversations uh, that we could be having, but something that we could address by simply by asking different questions. And, and I guess for a while, I'd sort of felt that that was uh, gonna be enough. But as we moved into the 2010s, my concerns increased as the rhetoric around relevance became more ubiquitous. Uh, I wasn't just, for example, I wasn't just hearing relevance thinking in conversations that I would have with association staff, but I was hearing it coming from board directors and officers while I was working with them. So by 2015, um, and I wrote a series of posts on deconstructing the relevance fallacy, and, and anyone who's read part one knows there's a link to those posts within the article that you can look at and, and read them. You know, I was very worried about the detrimental impact of relevance on association decision-making because it's so closely tied to orthodoxies around membership. It's not a generative way of thinking. It does not benefit stakeholders. And most importantly, it really fails to acknowledge the profound impact of the forces that I've been describing that are reshaping our world. So now here we are in the turbulent 20s, right? We're, we're 300, more than 300 days into this decade. The full force of the future has arrived uh, much sooner than we expected. We weren't ready for it. And yet, given everything that's transpired, there's still a conversation going on in our community that is focused on relevance. And, and to be honest, I, I, I find this hard to understand because um, our community appears to be confronting the most serious crises of our lifetimes with the same mindsets that left us unprepared for them in the first place. And, and more troubling than that for me is that if decision makers and organizations are viewing any new progress toward a different future through the lens of relevance, then that may give them a justification to take a hard turn back toward complacency, the complacency that relevance thinking created for organizations in the first place. So something that started out, as I said earlier, as kind of a benign distraction has now become, I think, extremely detrimental to our ability to move our organizations deeper into this decade and to make uh, the choices required to reinvent them in order to be adaptive to what's happening all around us and, and shape a different and better future for, for the association, for stakeholders, and for successors. Going back to what you said about your concerns about boards of directors and association staff talking about relevancy, what are some of the things specifically they're saying regarding their perceived need to be relevant? Like what kinds of statements do you hear that were concerning you? I think, I don't know that there's any one statement as such. It's just more the idea that the, these conversations are, are, you know, filled with the idea that, you know, what appears to be in, in uh, uppermost in their thinking is that we have, they have to make their organizations relevant. Um, you know, and, and if we do this, then we'll have an increased level of relevance, um, you know, and, and all the things we're doing make us more relevant. And, you know, just, just as a general proposition, you know, I'll say, announcing or implying in any way that you are not relevant is probably not a good starting point um, for organizational decision making, right? But as I said before, you know, this thinking is very much tied to a membership-centric way 
of looking at things because in virtually every context of a conversation around relevance, sometimes not explicitly stated, but, but implied, but nevertheless it's there, is that we're trying to make it more relevant for members, right? And the problem with that is that right now, uh, especially, and this has been true for a while, but it's especially true right now, is that we need to have organizations that are as inclusive as possible of as many different kinds of stakeholders as possible because you know, I think we understand that the pandemic doesn't just affect people who are members of an association. Pandemic affects everyone and economic and political and social consequences of a pandemic do not just affect people who have joined the association. So there are many stakeholders in professions, industries, and fields who need assistance, who need support, but who may never join, may never be eligible to join, may never want to join, can't afford it, whatever. There's any number of reasons. So we've got to have organizations that are supportive of them just as much as they're supportive of anyone else who's been a quote-unquote member for years or, or decades. So the relevance conversation is very much tied to this idea that it's about membership. It's very much tied to the idea that we can do reasonably um, you know, small things to make things a little more um, relevant and it doesn't necessarily, it's not, as I said, it's not generative about what we could be. It's, it's there's, it sometimes I think lowers the ambition or aspiration uh, around what is, what is possible. And as I was just explaining, it doesn't benefit the, the broader sort of set of stakeholders um, that we're, we're trying to serve. So it's not so much about any one thing. It's more like I hear this sort of embedded belief within so many things that are that are being said and it concerned me throughout the 2010s it concerned me in 2015 it concerned me in 2019 when i wrote for association advisor about the turbulent 20s and pushed back on for the on the sort of relevance fallacy last last year and it concerns me now and um, i'm i don't want to see our community turn back toward complacency especially as we move into 2021 which is it, it'll be a different year, but it's still going to be a difficult year, and and we need to keep our focus on where we're headed rather than trying to return to where we've been. Agreed. The issues that associations and our larger societies are facing today aren't simply going to go away once the calendar turns over to January 1st. So Correct. Right. That's right. And you're right. You did sound the alarm last year in a column in Association Advisor. Looking back, that was kind of prophetic that you were already sounding the alarm of the need to make some sweeping changes in associations. And here we are in 2020 and pretty much every association has been forced to make some changes, as you just said. Now you write that this focus on relevance could prevent association decision makers from taking what you've described as courageous and self-sacrificing actions. What types of actions do you mean? And what types of courage should associations be showing now? Mm -hmm. So what I've been telling my clients and what I've been saying to audiences for the sessions I've been doing is that there are, given everything that's happened this year, uh, given the weight of you know 20 years of transformation that have led to the circumstances we find ourselves in right now, there are no easy choices from this point forward for any any organization that includes associations. There are only hard choices. So the challenge for boards and chief staff executives 
is to make the correct hard choices from this point forward. And those correct hard choices must be oriented toward the long-term benefit of their association, stakeholders, and successors. So you'll notice that who it's not intended to benefit are boards and chief staff executives themselves. They are not among the beneficiaries of these choices. And that's intentional because in the context of reinvention, boards and chief staff executives are the ones who need to examine every aspect of what their associations are, what they do, every aspect of what has gone on, and especially focus on ways of doing business that may have been created for their benefit over the years. They may not have been the ones who created them. They may have been created by predecessors, but nevertheless, ways of doing business that existed or exist now and have existed for a while um, that benefit them primarily and, and act in a way that is decisive to do away with them. And, and this kind of process may well include coming to a difficult, pain, potentially painful conclusion that they are no longer the right people to serve in the roles that they currently occupy among you know other possibilities. So it, it won't be easy, right? As I said earlier, there are no easy choices from this point forward. It will require courage, which in this context, I think you can simply say is a willingness to be uncomfortable and perhaps even more than just simply uncomfortable, really, you know, have feeling a, a strong sense of, of discomfort um, in, in the situation and self-sacrifice, giving something up that is in, has been important to you for the benefit of those who will follow you, for the benefit of other people. And I think that's completely consistent with um, other things I've written in this column around stewardship. And, and that certainly will be, you know, a theme going forward as well. So I think that's where we, we find ourselves is that there's a there's a burden on the most senior decision makers in our organizations to take an, uh, a really candid, you know, sober look at what's been going on in their organizations over, let's say, the course of the last decade, maybe a little bit longer than that, and say, okay, what have we done here that we really has been set up that has primarily benefited us and not really been to the benefit of those we serve, and we've got to undo it. We've got to undo it. And that's going to require us to uh, make some sacrifices for ourselves and to um, demonstrate a willingness to, to be uncomfortable as we transition to a different way of doing business that is more sustainable, more responsible, and, and more appropriate given where we find ourselves right now and, and what's ahead of us in this decade. Jeff, are you talking about associations or are politicians? I got confused. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just well, kidding. It is funny. Well, when you were saying that, though, I did think to myself, this is so relevant far outside of the, the association space. I mean, I think you're spot on there. Well, it's but, it, you know, it's funny that you you put it that way, Kitty, because, you know, I've written in previous columns. And, and as I said, it will come up again that I think we need more stewardship in associations and less leadership. I'm very concerned that the leadership paradigm in the broadest sense of the term has been corrupted by self-interested thinking, zero-sum thinking, someone has to win, someone has to lose, you know, a short-term thinking, right, an unwillingness or a great reluctance to consider long-term consequences, to have the, the ability to see or to think about what the future might hold, learn with the future, the work of foresight that is so central to what I do. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that there's certainly there's 
there are implications in both directions, right? That the broader paradigm of leadership that is made manifest across our society by people in other sectors, in the political or government sector, in the business sector, um, in the technology sector, you know, in, in the academic sector or in the, um, you know, other kind of institutions of our society. What what's happening? What's been going on there for a while is is has become part of you know it's become an example, a bad example that people have tried to have followed, unfortunately, and I think it's created lots of perhaps unintended negative consequences. And and for you know for our sector, which is obviously much smaller than some of the other things I just described, there there is an opportunity in front of us as I write about in part one to really build 21st century um, societal institutions for associations that are focused um, on doing things in a different way, but it's going to require a different approach, a different mindset uh, than the one that we have now. And that I think begins with the process of reinvention and the willingness to go back to you know Kelly's original question, uh, the willingness to, to take courageous and self-sacrificing actions that are consistent with a stewardship mindset uh, versus a uh, the broader leadership paradigm that, uh, as I said, has been so um, obviously, uh, well, I mean, I use the word corrupted, which might be a strong word for some people, but I, I just I just can't think of any other way to say it because I, I, I think everything that I've seen over the course of these last uh, 10 or 15 years has really given me pause as we've moved closer to 2020 there are so many things you know that are that are troubling. It, it doesn't mean that there aren't people out there who demonstrate uh, effective quote unquote leadership, but I would actually say that many of the people who do what they actually do is something closer to stewardship than a more traditional um, individualistic self-referential idea of of leadership. And so, yeah, I mean, I think we we definitely we definitely have seen the consequences of what's happened around us there's still a chance for us to do it differently, but it's going to require a significant shift in thinking and action. That leads well into my next question for you, which I love this. This was also in part one. You argue that reinventing associations is a solemn responsibility to current stakeholders and a moral obligation to successors. Hmm. Why do you see it that way? So, uh, you know, let's talk about stakeholders first because I, I I talked about um, the importance of reinvention to to stakeholders a little bit earlier so and and the, the the difficulties and really in the context of how the relevance you know fallacy is not good for for stakeholders so if associations want their current stakeholders and I'm and I'm defining that in the broadest sense right I'm not using that as a euphemism for members I'm saying that there are people who are stakeholders to any association, some of whom occupy a membership relationship and others who might relate to the association in different ways. So in the broadest sense of the term, if associations want their current stakeholders to look to them for some kind of meaningful support during this difficult time, then, then associations have got to demonstrate to those stakeholders why they should have confidence in the judgments they're making about how to navigate the world in which we find ourselves. This is an irrevocably altered world. I've been referring to this as the what we're in the period we're in now as the discontinuous next, which is a 
period of volatility and uncertainty and risk that has been created by the discontinuous action of being shifted off one pathway toward the future, which happened when we were all of a sudden in a global pandemic. When we, January 1, we're headed toward one plausible future or perhaps multiple plausible futures. We were on one pathway and then we got knocked off that pathway. So a discontinuous event of a global pandemic knocked us off a pathway. And so every day we're dealing with some next issue that comes up as a result of having been knocked off that pathway. And sometimes it's a good thing, like for example, the a positive encouraging sign that you have a you know, vaccine that, that's had, a, had some positive results in clinical trials. It's not a solution or a panacea, but it's a, it's a step forward that we have to sort of put in context. But we're also gonna have things that happen that are bad. We'll take steps backwards, so we'll regress. So the stakeholders of our organizations need to have confidence that the decision makers are able to exercise appropriate judgment under these very difficult conditions, under conditions of radical uncertainty, volatility, and risk. So if associations are stuck in the relevance fallacy and not focused on reinventing their organizations for the rest of this decade, what message does that send to the stakeholders of the organization? There's got to be a level of confidence in the way that the decision makers are are stewarding the organization into the future. For successors, the stakes are even higher uh, because it is our successors who will experience the greatest impact of the turbulence throughout this decade, right? And, and we're not even just talking about what's happening right now, what's happened throughout this year. We're talking about the consequences of increased, uh, the increased adoption of AI and automation technologies throughout this decade. How will that affect work? How will that affect the human contribution? to work and how will our successors be affected by that potentially adversely. It includes things like the climate crisis and how will our successors be affected by uh, a failure to address uh, the climate crisis in a serious way and, and broader questions of inequality that, that existed before the pandemic that have been made worse by the pandemic, economic inequality, racial inequality, inequality in all of its forms, which was unsustainable before 2020 began and is now even more so Right? The, our successors are the ones who will feel the impact of those issues. They will suffer the most significant consequences if action is not taken to address them. And so every one of us who cares about the future of associations needs to also care about what happens to our successors. You know, every one of us was once, was once a successor 20 years ago when I was at a different, when I was younger, you know, when I was at a different stage of my career, I was a successor. And now I'm here and I'm on the verge really of being a predecessor to other people. And when I was a successor, I certainly hoped at that time that our predecessors cared about what happened to us. You know, I don't, I don't know how much that conversation came up, but I want to believe that there was at least some, some thinking about what would happen to those who would follow them. But regardless of what our predecessors did or didn't do, those of us today who care about what happens, we do have a moral obligation to those who will follow us. And we must do everything we can to leave this better for them. And I think up till now, we probably haven't done, I, well, not strike probably, I think we, we have not done a great job of leaving it better for them and we have a lot of work to do. And it doesn't matter one bit that we will never know most of them personally. And there'll be successors who come the rest of this decade and in the 2030s who I'll never know personally. Um, and none of us will ever know personally, will ever meet them 
uh, in any way. But nevertheless, um, you know, they're, they're, we're connected to them, right? It doesn't matter that those successors look different from us or think different from us or act different from us. They are us and we are they. And we owe this to them. And it's an absolute necessity as we think about how we're going to reinvent our organizations. It's not just about the people that we serve today. That's a part of it, an important part of it. It's about those who will follow and what we're going to do to give every possibility that what we leave for them is better than what we found so that they have a legitimate chance to thrive uh, as we go deeper into this decade and into the decades ahead. I couldn't agree more. And before we started this recording, we all had a brief discussion about how we are not video ready today. But for once, <laughs> I wish I was video ready because you would see me literally sitting in my seat cheering at what you're saying, <laughs> Jeff. <laughs> um, well, thank you. appreciate that. Because I think you're right. I think all of us have people, colleagues, friends, family members, children in our lives that will come after us in some sense of that phrase, whether it's they'll outlive us, whether they will move into leadership positions that we currently hold after us, or they will just, you know, exist in our communities after we've moved on. And so, yes, I think we all know people that we want a better world for, and we hope that the work that we're doing today is setting up that type of world for them to inherit so that they can carry on the banner of our industry or our community or our country after we have stepped down. At the same time, I feel like the issues you've just mentioned, while they are so important to address climate change, racial inequalities, gender inequalities, sustainability, treating each other better, they're really big issues. And I feel like an individual or even a group of individuals in an association might look at those issues and just be paralyzed because they are so large and complex. What do you recommend associations do to get started? Because it, based on the way you're talking about this, it seems like we are at a position where we need to get started. And there may very well be some associations out there who have been doing the stewardship work, the leadership work that you've been talking about. But by and large, it seems like as a whole, the association community is still at more of a starting position. So where should they start and what can they do to avoid that analysis paralysis that mm -hmm. these huge issues are likely causing in some people? Sure. So the first thing that I would say is, and I've been saying this for a while, is I don't expect associations to come up with a solution for the climate crisis. I don't expect associations to have a solution for AI and automation, the implications for human beings. I don't expect associations to solve every complex, wicked problem, to use the term that we, we sometimes float around. These are all wicked problems. They're, they defy easy solutions. They're very complex. They're very hard to, to sort of get common ground on. I don't expect associations to be the ones who will do that. I, what I do expect is that associations will be meaningful contributors to the process of addressing them in some fashion that they will see that even if something like climate seems far afield from what their quote unquote members do, that their their members are part of a broader ecosystem in which they operate, which which does affect them. If not, if, if not that, they're part of a broader society in which all of us will be affected and all of us are being affected day, day in, day out right now by the impact of uh, the climate crisis and and these other issues as well. And there are, there are things 
that associations can do around some of these issues. So just as an example, one of the things I've advocated for in, in my sessions on AI and automation is that uh, associations, given their efforts with respect to advocacy, uh, something that many associations are quite proud of, and, and I get that, um, that they can be directing their advocacy energies toward, even if it's at the state level, and I hope that eventually it'll be at the federal level too, and I think we'll need to have, we'll need to have federal action on this uh, eventually and, and sooner rather than later would be best. But even if it's at the state level where there is already things going on around AI and automation, is associations being in the place of saying, we're going to advocate for the most ethical and responsible use of AI and automation technologies. We're going to ensure, uh, we're gonna do everything we can to ensure, for example, the technologies like facial recognition, um, which is a toxic technology that is plagued by huge issues of bias and discrimination toward uh, black people and and people of other races and and ethnicities um you know something that should not be used until you know we can figure that out and maybe it'll never be used maybe it should never be used because it's so um potentially detrimental uh, to people you know that's something associations could do if they if they want to put themselves in what i would say is the right side of an issue like that one and there are other aspects of the ai and automation conversation where that's equally true and there are aspects of cl the climate crisis and inequality and, and so on. The other thing I would add to that is that many associations throughout the time and the immediate aftermath of the death of George Floyd and and in that same period, Breonna Taylor and Ahmed Arbery, you know, there were a lot of statements that were made by associations in which they reinforced their commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion against racism and against um, white supremacy and many organizations stated clearly that their belief that Black Lives Matter, and all that was great that that those things happened. It was it took way too long to get to that place, but nevertheless we got there. There needs to be a transition from symbolic action or symbolic steps to substantive action. So what are associations going to do? How will they participate in ensuring that um, they translate their public statements of support for the Black community into action that ensures that the black community in this country is able to, to fully participate in the American dream, fully participate in, in all kinds of economic gains and all kinds of educational gains based on the fact that there's been so much discrimination and racism directed uh, and oppression directed to at the, at the black community for centuries. So there are things that associations can do even short of feeling that they have to be responsible for addressing the totality of these very large issues. And what it simply requires is, and I shouldn't say simply, because as I said, none of this is simple, but what it requires is a willingness to think differently, a willingness to imagine that our organizations are something other than what they have been for the last 50, 60, 75, 100 years or more, that given the nature of where we find ourselves near the end of 2020, that there's a need for a transition to a different way of approaching what the association is, why it exists, what it will accomplish or what it can accomplish, uh, and how it will serve a broader set of stakeholders given the nature of the challenges we face right now, rather than trying to simply be what it has always been, but maybe slightly new and improved. That's not going to be enough as we move forward. So there's actions to take. It doesn't have to be a complete solution to all big problems. It can be a starting point on a number of different areas and, and building some uh, building some momentum for additional action. That also includes other people. They can also be reaching out 
and involving other other people in the process as well, building relationships, building coalitions, building alliances to uh, to create further momentum uh, for meaningful action. So I, I think there are a lot of things associations can do if there's a willingness to imagine the possibilities. And I hope that's reassuring to the many association professionals listening now. Can you give us a preview of parts two and three of your reinvention mandate series? What should we expect to hear from you? Sure. So, um, as I wrote at the end of part one, we're gonna I'm gonna focus in part two on the elements of an intellectual and ethical framework for reinvention uh, for associations. So I'm going to talk about the need for reinvention intent, uh, for an articulation of reinvention intent, and boards and chief staff executives working together to develop that reinvention intent and guide the advancement of that reinvention intent. And even though I say boards and chief staff executives working together, I think it's gonna require a lot of listening and learning with stakeholders to get at reinvention intent, but that's something that I really wanna challenge the most senior decision makers to work on is how will we reinvent this organization? What does that look like? And then be the ones who drive that process forward in with, with the assistance and support and participation of many other contributors. I think a second aspect of the this intellectual and ethical framework is the the need to enter into what I'm describing I described in part one as a next covenant with stakeholders and successors. Right, a covenant is kind of a sacred agreement, and and I think that that's something that has to be negotiated, has to be sort of discussed and developed and designed uh, in terms of what the association how it wants to think about its relationship with stakeholders and successors for the rest of this decade and beyond clearly connected to things like associate the association's purpose and um, and then also the reinvention intent. And then what are the elements of that really in, in, a, in a way moving beyond the conversation around membership and toward the idea of how do we build mutually beneficial relationships with stakeholders and to the extent that we can with with successors in some kind of covenant that really outlines how we're how we're going to work together to build something that is there for the rest of this decade and to really realize the full potential of reinvention intent. And then finally, coming back to something that I've written about before, but reinforcing it in a slightly different way, and which is the idea of adopting stewardship and governing and foresight next practices and 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 putting forward the idea that we need to change fundamentally the work of boards, the way that boards approach their new work, um, the way others contribute to that work, and to really drive home the importance of stewardship as a as a context, as a foundation for the, for pursuing reinvention. How governing needs to be different, or sort of direct, beginning to build a different approach to governing within that context and foundation of stewardship, and also the role of foresight in all that. So really kind of building out in part two, the starting point anyway, of the framework for how an association goes about reinvention, its intent, its relationship with stakeholders and successors, how to how to define that, and then also how do you build the capacity within the decision-making, the most senior decision-making group, the board, uh, for undertaking the work. And then in part three, you know, I don't want to go too far into it right now because I would like people to read. So I hope people will will look forward to reading. If you haven't read part one, I hope you'll read part one after this and I hope you'll look forward to reading parts two and three. What I'll say for now is that I'm I'm gonna go further in part three into the reinvention mandate 
itself. I didn't write about I, the title of the column is reinvention mandate, but I didn't actually write about the reinvention mandate in part one. I won't write about it in part two. Part three will be more of an exploration of what is the source of this reinvention mandate? Why am I using that phrase and what are its implications uh, for what we do in association? So part three is intended to kind of bring it to um, a very clear place of here's why there is a reinvention mandate, here's where it comes from, and here's what it means for what you do um, in your role, whether you're serving on a board or your chief staff executive or some other, contributing in some other way to the association. So that's that's the trajectory of this conversation as we move into parts two and three. And I certainly hope that people will read all three parts of the series and, and look at the complete picture of what it is uh, that I'm arguing for on behalf of our community and hopefully uh, it will uh, it will resonate with them. Well, I think I speak on behalf of Kelly and I both when I say I cannot wait to read what's to come in this series. So thank you for the preview and thank you for joining us again. This has been a great conversation. Well, thank you, Katie and, and Kelly. I really appreciate uh, the invitation and I'm excited to have this conversation with the two of you and uh, I appreciate everyone who, who listened to this uh, this discussion. Conversations with Jeff are simultaneously refreshing and grounding. I like how he focuses on big picture ideas that bring us back to the original purpose and mission of associations to serve our communities and improve what needs improving. And I also like that he reminded us through this conversation that the purpose of associations isn't to be relevant. It's to demonstrate why others should have confidence in their judgments about how to act in the discontinuous next as he frames the near term future. And if associations become stuck in proving relevance and not focused on leading or stewarding, they're sending the wrong message. In 2020, when everything has been unplugged and plugged back in, I think this is a great time to refocus on leading. I appreciate that he clarified that associations aren't expected to solve huge issues like climate change, the impact of AI or racial disparities. Thinking about that responsibility gives me personally a little heartburn, but I do totally agree that associations should have a hand in contributing something meaningful to the solutions for those issues. Associations have the power and resources to advocate for ethical and responsible solutions at state and federal levels. Jeff's right that it's high time for associations to act on the statements about their commitments to diversity, equity, and inclusion. But the hard part will be doing business and advocating for a world that's different than how it has been for the past 100 plus years. But who better to imagine that we as a network of linked communities can accomplish that than associations? Exactly. And who better to frame the question, how can we better serve others than association leaders? I'm looking forward to reading parts two and three of Jeff's reinvention series. His thoughts are gonna be the inspirational shot in the arm that we can all use going into a new year. I agree. And so to catch up on Jeff's reinvention mandate series, head over to associationadvisor.com. You can find all of his articles under the duty of foresight category, or you can search reinvention mandate or Jeff DeCanya within the site to easily pull up all of Jeff's writings. We'll link his reinvention mandate articles within these show notes for this episode on Anchor FM and on associationadvisor.com. If you're interested in being a guest on our podcast, let us know. You can email me at kclark at naylor.com with your details and your ideas for an episode. My email is spelled K C 
C-L-A-R-K at N-A-Y-L-O-R dot com. You can also message us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Asos Advisor. That's A-S-S-O-C-A-D-V-I-S-E-R. If you'd rather stay behind the scenes, but want to know more about a certain topic and think it should be featured, submit your idea to us and we'll work it into our lineup. Again, my email is kclark at nailer.com. Thank you to Naylor Association Solutions for sponsoring this podcast. Visit nailer.com to learn how Naylor can strengthen your association. Thanks for listening. Until next time.